My name is Dr. Duncan Rankin. I teach at Reformed Theological Seminary here in Houston. And it is a joy to be with you this morning. We have one of our children that was wise enough to marry into this congregation. And so um, uh, we look forward, uh, along with the Pendergrass family, to a, a grandchild soon, very soon and already overdue. Brother Richard Harris is a dear friend, and he asked that I convey to the congregation his apology for not being here. On Thursday evening, he contacted me in somewhat of a desperate way, and he said, Dear brother, can I get you to preach and do communion this Sunday at CPC? And I said, What is the need? And he said, Well, there is this volleyball team, and it is in the state tournament up in Dallas, and I have a daughter on that team, and if I don't go, go there could be divorce, murder, or something worse. <laughs> and so I agreed uh, in order to go, uh, to do that for him, so that he could go. Uh, I received a text last evening that not only did he need to be there as a father, but he is there now as a chaplain because uh, sometime in the afternoon or evening, the team lost, and so he is there comforting an entire team of volleyball players as I understand it. So pray for your pastor as he is away and he soon will be back with you. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalms chapter 1. Psalm 1. Uh, the Psalms are a glorious book. They're the longest book. 150 of them. Uh, and there is the full range of the Christian life, indeed, the full range of the life of Christ, the inner life of Christ, which is given there. It is the Old Testament gospel, uh, as the church fathers said. It is a book written for us to sing and read and pray and meditate upon for our comfort and for our encouragement and growth in the Lord. And so we come to this particular chapter, the opening one of the whole great book, seeking the face of the Lord because... The Lord our God has poured out his Holy Spirit upon the human author to, uh, to be inspired and therefore to write this inspired text. And we seek the face of our God that his Holy Spirit may also now be poured out to illumine the text and to shine it deeply into our hearts and lives. Hear the word of the Lord in Aaron and true. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we come asking for the great work of the Holy Spirit to continue in us. We pray for the Spirit's work of illumination. May he shine the light of his word. May it penetrate deeply into the recesses of our thinking and our feeling and our living. May we be brought into more conformity to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen. Well, the Psalms are a great and a beautiful book. I can remember as a child reading and memorizing and hearing songs, Psalm 1, Psalm 23, Psalm 100. I remember, I think, in third grade, as a third grade Sunday school teacher gave us, you know, our first official black leather bound Bible. I remember that she told us, you know, if you broke it exactly to the middle, 
there you will find Psalm 100. And I can remember as a child being so impressed. That, that just made Psalm 100 more special than any other of the Psalms. And of course, I had no idea that if the notes or concordance of the back were a little longer, all of that would change. But the Psalms are beautiful indeed to our souls. We did postgraduate work in Edinburgh, Scotland, and there we participated in, were uh, adherents in a congregation that only sang the Psalms at that time. Uh, they sang them a cappello, so we had to get used to hearing only the words and only the human voice, and it was something of an adjustment. But the effect on our youngest or our oldest child, uh, young though he was at that time, was amazing because as we were parents going about our business. I remember one day in my study working and I heard this little voice singing at the top of his lungs at the end of the hallway and I, I stuck my head out in the hall to listen and there he was playing with, his, playing with his toys and singing, the Lord is my shepherd. The tune was not exactly right. Some of the words were scrambled, but the heart was there and what a wonderful thing to hear as a Christian father. The Psalms are precious to us. And Psalm 1 is the first of the Psalms, not just the first of the book of the Psalms, but the first of the five separate books inside of the one book of Psalms. The majority of the Psalms were either written or selected by King David, and they're written for our singing. As we've enjoyed together singing the word thus far in this service, we have experienced, his, have we not, the importance of singing the very word of God because it lifts our souls to heaven. It encourages our hearts. It conforms us from the inside out to the thinking and feeling of our Savior, Jesus Christ, doesn't it? The Psalms were also written for our reading, as we have just done that our mind might be brought into greater conformity with that of the Lord Jesus, that we might think his thoughts after him. And so, as we lift up our head and look out at the world and go walking out into it, we live more and more each day to his glory. The Psalms help us. And we get that not only from private reading and family singing, but we especially get it from the public worship of God together. The Psalms are messianic, and they speak of or point in one way or another to Christ's great person and his great work. They remind us of him who is the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity, that he came and took on flesh and lived a perfect life, and died a perfect death for sinners like you and me. And therefore, as we read and sing and study and hear the preaching of the word on these psalms, our hearts are lifted to heaven, and we find them warmed by the blessed work of the Holy Spirit abiding with us still. A great old commentator whose claim to fame was he wrote the largest and I think the most heavy volume of commentary on the Psalms ever. Dr. William Swain Plummer, he said this, This Psalm, Psalm 1, has no title because it itself is a preface to all the great matters which come after it. It is a compend or a summary of all the Psalms, and indeed, of all the Scripture. And what does this summary teach us? What's the one thing you need to remember about this sermon? Kids, uh, you are authorized hereby, by the visiting preacher, to quiz your parents over lunch. And ask them what the one thing they should remember is. And you can see if they remember. It's this. If you want blessing... You need Christ. If you want blessing, you need our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the psalm begins speaking of the blessed man and contrasting him with the wicked. The blessed man does not walk, does not stand, 
does not sit with the wicked, we are told in verse 1. Hear it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Walk in their counsel? No. He doesn't pay them any mind. They babble away. They shout away. They demand away. And he lets their words bounce off his ears. He doesn't take their advice to heart. He follows the way of the Lord. He doesn't stand in their path. Now, if you are into college football right now and you're a follower like your pastor of the University of Georgia, you're very excited. If you're a follower of my team, Clemson, then you've been excited in just one game this year and all the others have been almost total disappointments. But this is not a football reference from the Old Testament. You know, standing in the way could mean blocking a guard or a tackle from trying to sack your quarterback. That's not what is being referred to here. Standing in their way or their path means following after them, following their lead, going along with them, and the blessed man does not go along with their scheming. Oh, the wicked scheme. They never cease to scheme. Their last thought on their bed is scheming against God at night before they fall asleep. The first idea which comes into their minds as they splash water and see themselves in the mirror is scheming against the goodness and the glory of God. The blessed man will not even sit in their seat. Now we remember that our Lord Jesus ate and dined with sinners and so it's not that he's never around sinners. The blessed man will not sit in their seat. That is, he will not engage with them around the table in their conferencing, in their plotting and scheming, in their developing group evil ideas and plans. He doesn't hang out with them in their evil planning. But if the blessed man doesn't do those kinds of things, what in the world does the blessed man do? The psalmist leaves us in no doubt. Verse 2 says... But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. The blessed man delights in the law, in the word of God. This reference in verse 2 is not to the law of God understood in the most narrow sense of the Ten Commandments, summarizing the moral law of God. It's not narrowly meant, meant to refer to uh, the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. This is the broadest use of the term. It's all of God's will, all of God's word, all of his revelation to us, his, the whole of his scriptures. They fill the mind and the heart of the blessed man. The blessed man rejoices in God's will and in God's word. He meditates upon it filling his mind with the good things of God. He has his mind in submission to the mind, to the heart, to the will of his heavenly Father. His mind submits and gives way to the thinking of God. His heart gives way and total agreement with the very heart of God. His will is bent, as it were, in the direction and in total agreement with the will of his heavenly Father. Verse 4 tells us in passing, the wicked are not so. We know, do we not? We know every morning when we splash water in our face and look in the mirror, that there the one who looks back at us is a sinner. We know and feel our need of a Savior if indeed we have come to trust in Christ alone for our salvation. The blessed man, however, delights thoroughly and unambiguously and totally in the law of God. 
The wicked lean in the opposite direction. We are finite creatures, and our minds can be very fuzzy and small. And so God blesses us in his inspired word, not just with this didactic teaching, but now with an extended illustration. To use a Halloween uh, candy illustration for you, uh, this is a, a time of the pulling of the taffy. Having collected the taffy, it's now pulled in front of us. And we get not just a little bite-sized sort of illustration of, of a word or a phrase alluding back to something else earlier in the Bible, but we get an extended illustration unfolding which gives us more and more information about the importance of these truths for our lives. We hear that the blessed man is a tree. He's a tree, according to verse 3. He's a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now this illustration of a tree is one which is relevant to all of us. The blessed man is firmly planted. And so when the storm winds come and they blow, he doesn't topple over and undergo destruction. The blessed man is planted firmly and so his roots hold and so he abides and he is not toppled over. But he is planted in a particular place, not in the middle of the desert, not in utter deprivation. He is planted by a stream, and so his roots go down and are able to drink up the refreshing blessing of God in his own life. He drinks up the good things of the Lord. And what happens? He is a real and true and live tree. And so he bears fruit. Think of an apple tree which has these little green, bitter, nasty things which appear from the flower. And then they grow and grow and they become red or yellow and they become sweet and a delight. That is what the blessed man is like. He bears, he yields the good fruit of God in his life. The fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love and joy, peace and patience and kindness, all of these characterize his life. He bears an abundant crop, not a stunted, not a malnourished kind of fruit, a full and gracious fruit. He's planted firmly where there are nutrients. He is, he is planted by a stream so there is all he needs for the growth and the blessing of his life to others. And we read that his leaf does not wither. And most importantly, we read the shocking words, in all that he does, he prospers. Now there's that word that we recoil from in our day and age and in our town. We recoil from the word prosperity, don't we? We have seen and heard of this prosperity gospel thing, and we know it for what it is. I can remember as a young seminarian, uh, we lived on campus and I would go from class and run home to prepare a pot of soup and a little sandwich and I would sit at the table by myself and I would every single day turn to one of the tele-evangelists and I would continue my education by watching The Heretic in Motion. I'll skip the name of the particular one that was my favorite. But you know, he would stand in front of you, dressed in fine array, and he would pull the keys out of his pocket, and he would jingle them in front of the camera. Jingle, jingle, jingle. And he would talk about how the prosperity and blessing of God would come in your life too if you just had faith like he did, and if you would just send all your money to him. If you would put it in an envelope and, and if you would pray over it on the TV and if you would put one of those stamps on it and put it in the mail, God would bless you for sure a hundredfold, a thousandfold. And then the camera would pull back and you would see one of his Mercedes Benz. 
and you would see his yacht there at the harbor. And there would be a large, tall building behind it, and you would think, oh, that must be his too. What a great man. What a great blasphemy. What a great heresy. Because you didn't need an MDiv from a theological seminary to know in your heart that this man was preaching about himself and that he was a picker of pockets and one who would make widows poor and needy for his own personal gain. What we are reading about in the blessed scriptures and in all he does he prospers in verse 3. That's the true gospel prosperity. It's a spiritual bounty that the blessed man has. He's without limit. He, he grows and, and he gives and he feeds and he nourishes through his fruit. Everything he does prospers. Not one leaf withers. Now let me ask you, this morning as as you were combing your hair and looking at the person in the mirror staring back at you, did you think to yourself, well, look there. How handsome. How glorious. One who has never had a leaf wither. Who has prospered in all things. A spiritual bounty without parallel or peer. Is that what you thought of yourself? No believer thinks that way under the influence of the Spirit. We have spread before us the table of the Lord this morning. And as we come, we are reminded of the life and particularly the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. We're reminded by the breaking of the bread, the breaking and tearing of his own body, his suffering and death were our sins. And we're reminded, truly, as the cup is taken, we're reminded of the blood of his covenant, that he voluntarily shed his blood for sinners like us, that their sins might be washed away, and that they might know forgiveness and reconciliation with the true and holy, righteous, heavenly Father. But this table as we come to it, while it's an occasion of great memory and great thankfulness, it is also an occasion of humility. We come humbly before the Lord, not in a braggadocious spirit, but we come confessing our sins. We come recognizing our need of a Savior. And therefore we come feeling something of our own deficit. We come in repentance. You know that other side of saving faith is evangelical repentance. And faith and repentance characterize all of the Christian life, don't they? And so as we come, we come confessing our sins and remembering and feeling that we need a Savior and being comforted and reassured here that we have a Savior indeed. For you see, we're finite, we're small. Our minds are not so clever all the time, and we need reassurance. And so God reaches out, not just in the incarnation and touches us in the flesh, but he also reaches out through the elements that he has appointed that we might handle, feel, taste, and see, and be reassured and comforted in the reality of the salvation which he gives in Christ. The elements don't save us, but they remind us of Jesus who does and is the only savior of sinners like us. The wicked, they're not like the blessed man, which the wind drives away, according to verse 4. The wicked, you see, they're not the tree. They are cursed. Verse 5 says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. God will 
judge them. There is a day of judgment which is coming, a day of reckoning. Do you believe that? No one, no one here in this room, no one in the thronging millions, it seems, out on I-10, your closest friends that you're locked in traffic with every day, none of them, not a one, will escape that day of reconciliation of the books. Do you remember a long time ago when there was a president with a southern accent who stood next to a pile of rubble in New York City and he said these words about the terrorists who knocked down the Twin Towers? We're going to get them, he said. We're going to smoke them out and we're going to bring them to justice. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and His Heavenly Father, the Maker of heaven and earth, will get them in the end. There will be a day of judgment. And in the judgment, the wicked will be weighed in the balance and found wanting, found lacking. Verse 5 says, the wicked will not stand. In the judgment. They're not like the tree, the tree that stands. They are not like that. They will not stand like a tree. They will be knocked down like the flimsy reeds that they are. They will on that day be seen. They will be seen to be that that they really are, and they will get that which they really deserve. Oh, they may have gone about August pomp and circumstance. They may have never had a hair out of place. They may have projected a perfect personality across the media, handled so well by the PR company. But on that day, the scales will fall off and the truth will be announced about them. They will Perish, we're told in verse 6. The way of the wicked will perish. It's like that great theologian Yoda said, do you remember? Mm, you will. Next time you think about Yoda, think about something better than Star Wars and Phase Fire. You will. And the wicked will face the judgment and they will perish. Now there's an interesting thing here. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 or 6 and 23 says, The wages of sin is death. And so this Old Testament theme is said in other words to us by the Apostle to the Gentiles. And he speaks with regard to the first death and with regard to the second death. You know, the first death is a very solemn thing. When we see people who have been tortured and killed, when we see the last breath of a loved one so dear to our hearts, we know that we're on sacred ground because they who have died were made in the image of God. In body and soul, they are like their creator in some basic ways. And so we should show respect to them in body and soul because we, we show respect first to our Heavenly Father. But the second death is also alluded to because in the second death there will be, after that general resurrection, a day of reckoning and of judgment, which is being referred to here in Psalm 1. And on that day, the words that are the most frightening in all the Bible will be spoken. Do you remember them? They came from the lips of our loving Lord. He loved us enough to speak the truth to us and to tell us what was going to happen on that day. He warned you of these words. Depart from me, you cursed ones, into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In Matthew 25 and verse 41. Depart, 
those words will echo. They will echo in the air. And many souls will gasp. Now, my friends, we've checked the block of hellfire and damnation. You can go home over lunch and talk about how you heard a hellfire and damnation sermon this Sunday. Praise be to the Lord. Because you know, if your preacher doesn't love you enough to tell you the bad news, then you can't really appreciate the good news as well as you should. Many years ago, I remember hearing a preacher who would never use the word hell and never talk about judgment and damnation. The closest he ever came to it was to refer to being naughty and going to the naughty place. And let me tell you, hell is a lot more than just a little bit of naughtiness. Now, however, we turn the verse. It's the same page, it's the same chapter 1 of Psalms, but the theme shifts back to the blessed man. The The theme shifts back to the good. We go from the hard and the bitter and the dark stuff to the good and the happy and the rejoicing stuff that is here too. You see, the righteous are different than the wicked. The righteous will not perish, we're told. The righteous will be a great company, excluding the wicked. Verse 5 says in full, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. There are the wicked, and then there's the congregation of the righteous. Did you hear it? That shift from the one blessed man to the congregation, the many of the righteous? The assembly of the righteous in its manifestation right now in the public assembly of God's people for worship in this place and in all places on his day. It always includes a mixture, Jesus tells us, of the wheat and the tares. There's the wheat. There are those who the elect. There are those who truly believe in Christ. They trust in Christ alone for their salvation as he's offered in the gospel. Their confession of him is sincere because he has poured out his Holy Spirit upon upon them first and they have been regenerated in their heart, their life, their soul. They have gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. They are no longer a corpse before the Lord. They breathe They live in him, and so they do what a living person does spiritually. They have faith in Christ our Lord, and they turn away from their sins and to him who is their Savior from those sins. The righteous... They're not like the wicked. They're not bound up. They're not blown away. They're not cast into the fire. You see, on that day, only the wheat will be gathered and go in to the blessing of the new heavens and new earth to fellowship with God forevermore. Let me ask you. Let me challenge you. Does that make you feel uncomfortable to talk about sin and judgment and death and hell? Pastorally, I admonish you, wherever you find your own thinking and your own feeling and your own living out of accord with our Lord and his word, then prayerfully ask him to realign you so that you might be more like Jesus And you might think and feel and live as he does about even these hard and difficult things. You see, the righteous are precious to the Lord. Verse 6 says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now this is not some abstract mental or philosophical thing. God knows all things and God is everywhere and he sees all and therefore he knows all about the righteous. Well, To the degree that's what it means, it could also be said of the wicked. (laughs) No, no, no. 
a contrast is being made here. God knows the righteous. He knows that righteous congregation because his love is set upon them. He indeed has united them to his son. And so as he loves his son, so he loves them. And no one shall ever snatch them out of his hand. This is an announcement of God's eternal love for his people. For you, believer, that no matter how it feels, no matter how much frustration and strain, even in the abstract, sins that you might commit, if you are truly his, and he is truly yours, you shall, in the end, persevere. It should lift our hearts, even though the frame of the topic is very difficult and heavy. Oh, one good old commentator put it this way, no love of man is comparable to the amazing tenderness of God to all his people. He pities like a God. He approves the graces implanted by his own spirit. He loves his chosen with an everlasting love. He deals mercifully with all who put their trust in him. Amen. God loves his people. He loves the good gifts and graces which he gives to them. He cannot but love them because to deny them, to deny those realities in them and their new status in Christ would be to deny himself, to go against his own attributes, his own character, his own righteousness. And that's just not possible. It would be like the father going against the son or the son going against the spirit. It just will never be. His saving love is set not upon the wicked, but his saving love is set upon his people. He extends the hand of love to all. Whosoever will may come. All are given the outward call to come, but only those in the decree that he elects and those that he gives saving faith to and evangelical repentance do come in the amazing mystery of God he is able to raise us from the dead so that we do come why me Lord well the secret things belong to the Lord our God but the revealed things belong to us and to our children forever. And so we trust him, even though we don't know the why and the names and every detail. But when God looks at us, when he looks at believers, he doesn't see just us. Now, I have uh, trifocals in my old age and my uh, the biologist tells me I'm developing these blessed uh, little things that remind me daily of my finitude. Floaters and cataracts. Does anybody know what those are? I look here and I see a very handsome congregation. I, I see people listening attentively to the word in spite of the one delivering it. But what I see of you is not all of the reality that God sees. God sees those who truly trust in Christ as never alone. Brother Axel is sitting there on the front row. But in truth, Brother Axel is not alone, even though there's no one on either side at this moment. He is united to Christ. He trusts in Christ alone for his salvation. And so he is indwelt by the Holy Spirit who has made him alive. And he has the blessings and benefits of Christ applied to him. And so he responds in faith and in repentance. He fellowships with the Lord. The Lord begins and continues that great work of sanctification in him. He was justified at one point in time by the outward word of God about him 
that he is in his son and therefore not guilty and he is forgiven. But the rest of his life continues with Jesus. He is filled with the Spirit. He continues to walk in the Spirit. And even when he stumbles, and even when he grievously sins, God does not abandon him, but brings him back to the way, to the path, that he might not be disappointed on that last day. Oh, when God looks at you, believer, he only sees you in truth, in union and communion with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now we can face the obvious question in this chapter and in the whole of the Psalms. Who? Who is this blessed man? Now there have been a lot of things suggested down through the years. Perhaps this is a general reference to any pious human some have offered. Oh my. Did they not wake up and see themselves in the mirror that day? We are not so pious as to be prospering spiritually in everything we do. Uh, we sometimes have leaves wither. Sometimes the fall comes and they all fall off, don't they? We are not the blessed man. And the blessed man is not some pious Israelite. Uh, the proper DNA will not help you at that point. Could it be a past reference to Adam back in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Well, that's more theologically clever as an answer. Because indeed, he stood in innocence and righteousness for a time. And if he's the blessed man, then boy, the blessing's fairly short in duration. And it's been unblessed men ever since. That's not what's being referred to here. Is it a past reference to Joshua because of his sim similarity of his name to Jesus and a parallel with Joshua 1 in verse 8? No. It is, as the best of the fathers first tell us, a future reference to Christ alone. Jesus Christ our Lord is the blessed man. Whatever the anonymous author of this book or its original audience might have thought, one thing is clear. As we compare Scripture with Scripture, we remember that Jesus Christ our Lord read this psalm, sang this psalm from his childhood. He sang it in the worship of his Heavenly Father, and he would have known and would have seen his own reflection in this mirror, in this psalm. Good old Andrew Bonar, the great Scottish divine and commentator, said this, We know Jesus read it. And we know his delight was in the law of the Lord. He often quoted from the book of Psalms. And as he read it, it would be natural to his human soul to appropriate the blessedness pronounced on the godly. For he knew and felt himself, indeed, to be the godly one. Who had not walked in the counsels of the ungodly, nor stood in the way of sinners, nor sat in the seat of the scornful. He felt himself at all times able to say, Thy law is within my heart. He was not wicked. He was indeed the true palm tree standing. He felt himself to be the good, true palm granite tree of fruitful blessing to all of his people. Can we help but think of him alone as realizing the description of this psalm? We aim at this holy walk, but he is the only one to see it and to do it. The blessed man is Jesus Christ our Lord, and the confirmation is not far away in the book of the Psalms. Do you remember David's point in the Messianic Psalm number 24? He announced under inspiration, Who can ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to vanity or sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord. 
Now, we have been vain at times in our lives, have we not? We have lifted up our hands not to holiness, but to evil sometimes, have we not? We have sworn deceitfully on occasions in our lives. And so we do not stand as the blessed man in these terms. Who is the one who is able to stand on the Mount of Zion and is able to be the focal point of the temple? The psalmist says in verse 7 of Psalm 24, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up eternal doors, that the King of glory may come in. Jesus Christ our Lord is indeed the King of glory, the promised keeper of all the Davidic covenant, the Son of God and the Son of Man, who indeed is King of all of his people and will reign eternally. Jesus is the blessed man, and we can only be blessed. You, each one of you, can only be less blessed in and by him. You see, the righteous share in his blessings. Christ is the very Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He's the one who takes on flesh and dwells among us. He fulfills all righteousness, living the life that you have failed to live. He is the spotless Lamb of Calvary. He, he has no need to repent or die for his own sins. He is the one who identifies with us and substitutes for us. He received the death that we deserve. And we receive the blessings which he only deserved. We're justified by his foreign righteousness. It's not that he pours out some substantial grace in our lives so that we become perfect. As my wife would say to you, as she says to me, you know you're not perfect. And she's right. He is perfect. And everything to his account is credited to ours. It's like a joint checking account with an endless credit line because he himself is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable who died on the cross for our sins. Our own goodness and our own faith cannot save us. Only he can save. And so he must be yours and you must be his. And that means you must do what you cannot do in your own strength. That means you must do to be saved what you lack the ability to do, which is to trust in him alone and look to him alone for your salvation. Faith is a gift and an instrument, an empty set of hands which he gives with which you pick the bountiful harvest to his glory. To have him, our Lord Jesus Christ, is to have his benefits, his righteousness, his goodness, his fruit, his gifts, his blessing. God will not and God cannot deny his own son or those united to him. And so we read in Psalm 2 and verse 12, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, the righteous are righteous because they walk in him, not in the counsel of the wicked. As Colossians 2.6 says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, not in fellowship with the wicked. They stand in his path, the paths of righteousness, not in the path of the wicked. And they stand in the right place for his namesake. They're sealed and seated with him in the heavenlies, not in the seat of the scorner below. They won't even put up with the scorner. They'll walk away. And all they do in him prospers. All things work together for the good of those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And it's only because of what he has done first. 
and that even the best of our works, still tainted by sin, are washed in his blood and so presentable as an offering and a sacrifice to him. Oh, the wicked are not so. They are like unto the chaff which the wind drives to and fro. In judgment therefore shall not stand such as ungodly are, nor in the assembly of the just shall wicked men appear. Oh, the blessedness and the sweetness of life in Christ. So the question of the hour is this. Where do you stand with the blessed man? Do you stand outside of him, removed from him, distant from him? Or are you coupled with him? Are you one with him? by the great work of faith and of the spirit that he does in you first? Do you embrace him by saving faith with your whole heart? My friend, it can get cold outside, can't it? We had a little foretaste a few nights ago. It can get cold outside and lonely. The wind blows. And if you have no root in him, if you're not refreshed by him who is your savior, then you will dry up like grass and be blown away into the fire. But wed to Christ, united to him by faith and by the spirit, you're never alone. The storms of life can come and the anchor holds. Your root is firm. You stand safe in him forevermore. And so I admonish you, I beg you, I plead with you to see Jesus, to trust in him alone for your salvation. And he will make you blessed indeed. Let us pray. Our most gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, we ask now for your blessing upon us as we go from the word read and preached to the word seen. We ask, O Lord, that you would help us to look to Jesus and to know the salvation that he is for his people. May we know the presence and work of him and his Holy Spirit forevermore, and we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.